Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hi, listeners. It's Lila. So the Oscars announced their nominations this week, and I would like to thank the Academy because it turns out that some of our guests from last year are up for the biggest awards. I'm talking about Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan, otherwise known as Daniels. They're the directors of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And Ruben Oslund, the director of Triangle of Sadness. So today, we've decided to reshare those two interviews. Before we get started, I want to quickly remind you that we have a survey running to hear what you think of our show. If you fill it out, you could win a pair of really nice Bose headphones and make us very happy. It's at ft.com slash weekend survey. That link is in the show notes. Okay, let's get into it. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Enjoy the show. Have you seen that new movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? If you haven't, just bear with me as I try to describe it. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. It's about a Chinese-American family who own a laundromat and who are bad at communicating with each other. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. But there are also multiple versions of them that exist in multiple universes. There's an evil anti-hero, there's a lot of kung fu. The characters switch easily between Chinese and English. It's complicated. But this film is killing it at the box office. So we invited the film's directors, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheiner, into the studio. And I asked them how they define their movie. It's about a, a Chinese immigrant mother who is trying to survive the chaos of modern life, um, who then gets pulled into the multiverse, which, uh, you know, becomes mm -hmm. a metaphor for that chaotic life that we're all trying to move through and exist in. That's Daniel Kwan speaking. Together, he and Daniel Scheinert are known as Daniels, or The Daniels. Here's another take on what this movie is about, this time with commentary from Daniel Scheinert. It's a Family drama that gets interrupted by a sci-fi film that gets sidetracked by a romance that gets undercut by... Um, an absurdist comedy. An absurdist comedy. And then it yeah. becomes this blender of narratives, uh, like a beautiful smoothie or gazpacho of a film. Mm. Um, where uh, <laughs> A cosmic gumbo. A cosmic gumbo, exactly. Uh -huh. yeah. Was the question, uh, please give a short summary? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did we nail it? <laughs> the Daniels have also been getting rave reviews from critics. The New York Times, Vulture, Rolling Stone, they all loved it. And this is only their second feature. Somehow, with everything everywhere all at once, these two young filmmakers have managed to create something strangely perfect for our anxious times. 
To understand the story behind Everything Everywhere All at Once, it helps to know that the Daniels are best known for the music videos that they made in the 2010s. They worked with a wide array of pretty big names, from rapper Lil Jon for Turn Down For What, to the indie rock band The Shins. These videos, they never had anyone singing in them. They were little surreal universes, like little short films with families fighting or middle-aged people hip-thrusting. Then, in 2016, they came out with their only other full-length film. It was called Swiss Army Man. Could I pass that one to you? Yeah, it's just a real simple feature film about a lonely man who discovers a corpse with uh, powerful farts and rides them across the ocean to escape a deserted island to freedom as beautiful music plays. And that's the first five minutes. And it's kind of like a... And it gets even weirder from there. Yeah, it's like a existential buddy film about a man and his corpse best friend. And we like to call it a fart drama because genuinely... Our goal was, could we make people cry from a fart? Um, And we succeeded with some people. (laughs) So the Daniels have always been ambitious. But how did they go from making a bunch of slapstick fart stuff, however deliberate, to making this emotionally nuanced film about familial love? Some of it was the cast. The cast is exceptional. It includes Michelle Yeoh, an actual kung fu movie star. It has Jamie Lee Curtis. Kihi Kwan is in it, too. You might remember him from The Goonies. Stephanie Hsu, who plays May on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, she's the daughter Joy. But I wanted to know what else went into it. I guess from the part that you started thinking about this as one film and not a bunch of ideas and started to sort of define what you wanted this film to be in the beginning um, to what the film became, how did it change? How did the puzzle fit together? Like, were you throwing ideas at the wall and then you found a cohesive theme. What was that process? Mm. Yeah, we're, uh, our process is pretty messy. We throw a lot at the wall and, and a lot changes. Um, but really we kind of started with just a multiverse adventure of sorts. And we loved the idea that the protagonist would be our parents' age. Uh, yeah. And kind of like our parents got sucked into one of our movies. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about what makes that so special within the context of the multiverse is the, you know, the multiverse is, is a beautiful and terrifying vessel for you to explore um, regret and just the questions of, of, of what if. And uh, we knew that if we put someone our own age, someone who was 20 or 30 years old into that premise, it wouldn't be quite as powerful as someone who has lived a fuller life, who, who has had many more years to ponder that question of what if. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Adjacent to that, another wonderful parallel was when we realized that the whole immigrant story is 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 kind of already a multiverse story because you exist in three or four worlds. You you exist in the world of your of your family. You live you exist in the world of the new um, country that you've moved to, and then when you have kids, your your kids have this other hybrid world, this third world that exists in neither of those places. And um, the more we dug into um, that collision of of narratives, the the more uh, fruitful and exciting it was, and so we just kept chasing that. We kept chasing a way to turn this incredibly massive idea into something very, very personal. Mm. I've heard the movie compared to so many things like The Matrix and Kung Fu movies, but I left it feeling like it reminded me so much of Sliding Doors, that nineteen ninety eight romantic of comedy. Mm-hmm. And I, you were talking about that what if moment. I mean the reason that sliding doors is like 
So in the ethos is that that question is in so many people's minds all the time. Like, what if I hadn't gotten on that train? What are all the paths my life could have taken? Why was that interesting to you? I think now, I, I know people have always asked that question, you know, in every moment in history, I feel like people have always asked, you know, what if? Um, yeah. But I think right now, the reason why it's really ringing true again, having another moment is because the internet almost makes you um, that much closer to all those possibilities because we are constantly seeing other, um, I guess, like proxy humans living out different versions of what could have been our lives. Yeah. When I um, go on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and I see my classmates and where they are in their lives, um, knowing that we all came from the same town, that's like one version of it. And when I see family members and cousins who, you know, came from the same blood as me and, and all the lives they're living, it's, you know, that's another version of it. But um, we, we are just constantly being fed these narratives of other people's lives that feel in some ways so foreign and so distant, but at the same time, something that like could have been for better or for worse. You know, sometimes we pine for it and sometimes we're grateful that we're, we don't have right. that life or whatever. Even though the movie never really mentions the internet once, it, it's very much fueled by this strange existence we have right now where we are, our, our lizard brains are trying to keep up with, you know, infinite technology. That is weird. Yeah. We never mentioned the internet, but the internet totally inspired the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, totally. I mean, you, you don't even need to mention it because I yeah. think people, even if people we don't. We all know. Yeah. You, you can feel it. I want, you know, our, my producer Topher said, go into this film blind, like don't read anything about it. Don't watch anything about it um, before you go. And so it was a real journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was really cool. Like, you know, there were so many genres in this one film and I just trusted you. I let go of the reins and I just trusted you that you were just going to bring me, even when things got chaotic or weird, that like we were going somewhere. And I'm sure there were a lot of very deliberate choices you made to be able to pull that off because I left loving it. And mm. so many people left loving it. So I'm curious, like, what were the internal rules of your movie? Did you have rules for when you switch genres? Like, were there things that matter to get right and didn't matter if they were right or wrong just like mm -hmm. how did we trust you so much how did you pull that out wow thank you uh, first of all it sounds like you had the ideal experience going in blind <laughs> and then the fact that you were able to let go at a certain let go. point I, I think i think the people who really um don't connect with the, the film are the ones who like are stubbornly holding on the whole time trying to you know, reason with the film when the film does not want to be right. reasoned with, which again, is it's kind of, a, uh, you know, the point of the movie too. It's like sometimes you have to let go to the chaos of our existence. And it's like going on a roller coaster yeah. and just like stiffening all your muscles as you go around the bends, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, I refuse to yeah. get and then, moved by this. And then the next day you, right. you throw out your back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I, yeah, it was very much um, a conscious decision to make sure that the audience member always felt like they were in good hands. Yeah, it's hard to like pin down like the rules. Like we we talked a ton about rules, but then at the, at the end of the day, it was just a constant conversation about how we wanted the audience to feel each scene and to constantly mm. ask ourselves, you know, how far have we pushed them out of their comfort zone and is that too far, you know? But also right. like if we made the rules too clear and too consistent, then we couldn't get to where we were trying to get to, you know, which is like eventually we knew we wanted the audience to to let go of the reins and, and have to surrender to the absurdity of infinity. Right. Um, there were a lot of moments, <laughs> a lot of discussions where we had to figure out the difference between confusing in a good way versus confusing in a bad way. Yeah. We actually sometimes had to make things even more confusing 
to help the audience understand that they're supposed to be confused, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Is there an example? There's a scene where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is fighting Michelle Yeoh uh, somewhat early in the movie, and we were struggling with how to do the leaps from universe to universe, and then we gave them abrasively different music in each universe, <laughs> right. and it's, yeah. and something suddenly clicked, where it's like it gave you permission to be like, for the audience to be like, oh, this is supposed to be... This whiplash is intentional. Whiplash. And I'm feeling it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. To just be like, sentimental music and horror music, you know. I won't describe the many different universes that you see in the movie because I don't want to spoil it. But I did ask the Daniels to tell me about a couple of universes that didn't make it in. We have a really obnoxious one. It never even made it into a draft. A lot of our times early on, we just try to make each other laugh. And then if we laugh, that's part one. And then we're like, is there anything deeper to that? Is that worth shooting? And sometimes the answer is no. And then that doesn't make it into the <laughs> script. Uh, so there was one universe where uh, we communicate through silences instead of through uh, sounds. So like um, mm-hmm. the bass layer is constant sound. So it would just be like in this universe, everybody would just stand around going, ha, 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 And like... So we thought, like, you might visit, go to a wedding or a funeral, and it's just like a hundred people all just going, ah. Um, While the person on stage is giving a eulogy, crying, but silent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very confusing, high concept, doesn't make, really work. Didn't make the cut. Yeah. yeah. To me, though, the most poignant scenes are about family. There's one scene in particular that a lot of reviewers are commenting on, and it really stuck with me, too. It's the scene between Joy, the daughter, and Michelle Yeoh's character, Evelyn. There's a moment at the start where she looks at uh, her daughter, Joy, and she looks like she's about to say, I love you. And instead she says, you're getting fat. Mm-hmm. And I, I just like, I think I felt a gut punch in the theater from every child of an immigrant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm curious about that moment, if you have any stories of that moment, what that moment was about to you. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to the fact that it, it, <laughs> it, it's a very um, familiar um, experience for People who, who, yeah, who are the children of immigrants, um, and it's, it's very interesting to watch the the film in a uh, mixed crowd, for lack of a better word, where there's some people who, you know, my my wife, for example, has very loving parents, and mm-hmm. so something like saying you're 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 looking fat, you should eat healthier, is is like. Mm-hmm so cruel and also very funny and so some people will laugh at that moment laugh or gasp or go like oh yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you know the other half of the audience the the, the children of immigrants can like feel it and they they understand the um the strange way that that line can both be cruel and loving at the same time i think mm-hmm. um one of the things that we wanted to get across with the film is is those moments are the way in which our immigrant parents show our love um, or show their love to us. They don't have the the luxury of of showing emotion and being um, romantic and being, you know, just having the full-on um, emotional uh, experience and connection that uh, most people do because they're so busy just trying to survive and trying to yeah. um, hold their lives together, hold their families together. There's there's just so much to do. And, and so the, this film became a journey of almost imagining another universe in which our parents were allowed to fully express themselves or they had the mm. luxury to um yeah to to experience these hollywood narratives of 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 a rom-com of an action movie of a you know all these um you know people like to point out the fact that our film is constantly referencing other movies and genres and stuff like that and that we're movie lovers but ultimately what what's so beautiful about that is yeah we get to see our immigrant parents 
experienced all the things that people have already experienced in so many other movies and so many other uh, genres. That feeling of holding everything at once, um, no pun intended, (laughs) that's a thing that feels very hard for us to do right now. You know, that you can be good, but you can make mistakes. You can mean two things when you say one thing. And just because you said the one thing doesn't mean you're a bad person. You can want peace, but end up, you know, a violent kung fu hero Mm -hmm. to get there. And um, I don't know, how much did you want that to be a lesson? Or did it end up that way because of all the different things you were trying to do? I think it makes me think about like, we've started self-describing ourselves as maximalist filmmakers while while promoting the movie uh, and and yes. and kind of realizing that that's uh, a a unique thing as an as a storyteller to be like no that, we're going to do that like that's what we're going to try to put too much in and that's kind of our what inspires us and 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 maybe our skill set and I, yeah. I think like we did on a gut level want to make like an overwhelming movie for our overwhelming times, like a a movie that kind of spoke to how we were feeling these days, um, which is kind of a little too connected and a little too sensory overloaded. Um, And somehow while making it give ourselves like a vocabulary for some useful tools when we're feeling that way. Yeah. I I think one of the things that you're responding to and and, and one of the things that we we are reacting to as filmmakers is the fact that our animal brains are constantly essentializing, constantly uh, simplifying and trying to figure out what the easiest narrative is for everything, including humans. And so um, what that does is we are, um, yeah, we're constantly making each other small and minimizing each other in order to contain more and more information. Um, because, you know, evolutionarily, that's just how we survive is, is we create these mm. really quick narratives so that our brain can focus on, you know, quote unquote, um, important things. And um, as we get more and more connected, I think our primitive lizard brains are constantly going to be having to reassess how we um, look at each other. And, and this film is, is a, almost an attempt to remind ourselves of the uh, the multitudes that we all contain and um, the multitudes that any idea has, the, the, the complicated gray areas that exist, whether or not we choose to see it, you know. Mm. And I think in some ways unless we as a society understand a way to communicate that constantly to each, each other. The fact that we all contain multitudes and despite the fact that we are constantly being barraged on all sides with different narratives, we const- we always have to be finding ways to do the opposite of minimizing each other. Um, trying it's an to, okay feeling to have. It's an okay feeling to have. if you feel it. <laughs> and, and, but I think, yeah. I think it's something our, 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 we'll be exploring with a lot of our work, um, at least within the next couple you know, decades, if, if we're allowed to keep working. Um, I feel like we'll yeah. be constantly trying to play with this, this problem. And um, yeah, I, I, hopefully yeah. science, art, philosophy, all of this journalism, all of it will help us figure out how to do that. Mm. Uh, well, thank you both so much for being on the show. Uh, we loved your film. Thank you so thank much you for so having much. us. Sometimes I like going to a movie without knowing anything about it. Just walking into the theater, almost blind, sitting down, seeing what happens. I did this recently with a movie called Triangle of Sadness. 
All I knew is that it won the biggest prize at Cannes Film Festival this year, which is called the Palme d'Or. A Triangle of Sadness is a dark comedy about a model and an influencer, and it's a social commentary. But about a third of the way through, it gets very dark and very physical, and I was entirely unprepared. Basically, they're on a luxury yacht, and there's a storm outside, and the boat starts rocking really wildly. And almost everyone on the cruise starts vomiting. It was approximately 18 minutes of vomiting. So much that I actually thought I might vomit, so I had to get up and go outside and listen to it from outside of the door until it was over, and then I came back in. And the message to me was pretty clear. It was, the rich should be punished. The director's name is Ruben Osland, and he seemed to take real pleasure in putting the 1% on a boat and making them suffer. So when I talked to Ruben recently for this episode... I was surprised that he actually doesn't think of this film in those terms at all. First of all, I want to say I'm not a fan of uh, the, the how to say advertisement of the movie as an eat the rich uh, mm-hmm. movie because uh, what I actually tried to do was to portray everybody as nice. Everybody's failing in my movies, and uh, <laughs> but but everyone is failing. Not right. only the rich people are failing; everyone is failing. Actually, a lot of major critics read Triangle of Sadness as an eat the rich movie. And it is sort of being advertised that way in the U.S. So I wanted to know from Ruben what he thinks people aren't seeing. If you look at the characters, who are really the nicest characters in Triangle of Sadness? I would say it's the, uh, the oligarch, the Russian oligarch, probably. <laughs> yeah. he's, a, he's a very sympathetic guy. You want to spend time with him. Yeah. Uh, and the British arms dealers couple. They are the mo- I would say they are the most sympathetic uh, characters that I have ever made. In that they're sort of polite, even though they're flawed. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so I, I'm not, I'm not agreeing on this kind of criticism because I think that people are reading it from a, a perspective of this is how conventional film is told. Ah, mm-hmm. the rich people are mean and the poor people are nice. No, look at the film again. It's not true. Triangle of Sadness is a film that has three acts. In the first act, we meet a beautiful couple named Carl and Yaya. He's a model. She's an influencer. And they kind of love each other, but they also are clearly together because it's good for both of their brands. So, is this runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? The second act you know about, Carl and Yaya are on a luxury cruise, and things go really, really bad. It looks paid for the tickets. Not bad, huh? (laughs) So what do you do? I sell shit. is going under. In the third, they're shipwrecked. The ship has capsized and its surviving passengers are on a desert island having to fend for themselves. This is really bad. This is really, really bad. By the way, all of this is in the film's trailer and it's in all the reviews, so I haven't given away much. But there might be some mild spoilers depending on what you consider a spoiler. So if you don't like that, you might want to fast forward or come back. Ruben, welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Your film was really, uh, I loved it. It was a total wild ride. I would actually really love to hear how you would describe what Triangle of Sadness is about. Uh, (laughs) Well, I would say I got interested in the film when I met my wife eight years ago. 
uh, and she's a fashion photographer. Mm. So I got interested in her profession. Uh, I, I was a little bit scared of the uh, of the fashion industry, the beauty industry. It's scary and attractive yeah. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got very interested when she started to tell me about uh, the models and the fact that the models comes from all different parts of society and that their looks uh, their beauty uh, have become a currency where some of them that are coming from uh, working class actually have climbed in class society because of their looks. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look in, in, the, in the topic or the theme of beauty as a currency. Uh, so that, that was basically the starting point. Ruben became really interested in this idea of the branded couple, that even our most private relations could be connected to economy. And he explores that through Carl and Yaya. We watch them strive to make it. And then we watch them interact with people on the crews who have made it and staff who are below them on the totem pole. Until this whole precious balance is interrupted by that awful storm. Ruben, I've been waiting to talk to you about this since I saw the film. Um, There's a storm and basically everyone starts vomiting and it's filmed tilting back and forth, so you feel like you're on the boat in the storm. And it was really the most uncomfortable 30 minutes of film I think I've ever experienced. It was, I had to actually go outside the theater and watch it through the glass because I was so nauseous. Interesting. And um, that isn't to say it wasn't effective. I will never forget it. Can you tell me about that? Like, how did you decide how far you wanted to take that scene? You know, I, I come from a ski filming background, mm-hmm. so I was making ski films, and uh, I was traveling in 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 the US and in Europe and filming my skiing friends when they were trying to do as spectacular things as possible, and every day was about to try to push it a little further than we have ever done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a little bit in my backbone. When mm-hmm. I do a scene, I want to push further than I uh, ever seen anyone else do before. Mm-hmm. And when it came to uh, the vomiting scene or the storm uh, on the yacht, you, first of all, I have to say it, it basically started when I was doing research because I went on one of these cruise lux- luxury cruise ships, mm-hmm. Incognito. I didn't tell anyone that I was doing research for oh, making it. Cool. Yeah. And, and one night they had the Italian buffet. Uh, and uh, that night uh, it was also strong winds coming in. Mm-hmm. And the weather <clears throat> got rougher and rougher and the waves got bigger and the boat started to rock. And, oh, no. you know, in one of these fine dining uh, <laughs> situations where people don't know which fork and which knife they should take when they eat, and they, this etiquette is so strong, it was very interesting to see when the social contract was broken. Right. When we all of a sudden have to behave in a way that we are not allowed to behave. Right. And for me, the most interesting thing was not to look at people vomiting. It was much more interesting to look at people looking at people vomiting. <laughs> so, so, so if I had someone in front of me, I was sitting and eating this dinner, and they hear someone vomit in the end of the dining room, what will this person do? Will right. it continue it, or should I leave? Or <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm just very how to say, interested in when, when social contracts are broken. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, um, I had this idea that Woody Harrelson should play a Marxist captain. Right. Uh, and I thought, I, thought, I thought it was a hilarious idea, you know, a Marxist captain on a luxury yacht. Uh, right. And uh, 
Uh, the idea was that he was supposed to get really, really drunk and uh, have a political discussion uh, with a Russian oligarch through the microphone system to this uh, <laughs> vomiting uh, guests of the luxury dwarves. <laughs> and I know if I don't go far enough, it's not going to be anything. So I decided that I, if, if I really, really push it, there will be a certain point where the audience will say like, no, please save the guests. They have had enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I would go five steps further. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, the storm dies down. The puking is over. The survivors find themselves on a desert island, Robinson Crusoe style. And on this island, the hierarchy of the luxury crews has turned completely upside down. Because the currency here isn't money anymore. It's being able to survive in the wild. So a woman whose job on the boat was a toilet cleaner, her name is Abigail, she's the only one who knows how to catch fish and make fire, so she becomes the most powerful person on the island. And at first you're watching and you feel like, go Abigail, hell yeah, eat the rich. But then she starts to get power drunk and she gets corrupted too. And people are using whatever currency they have on this island in a place where there's nothing to win her favor. Flattery, flirting, friendship, beauty. I'd love to hear a little bit about your thought process behind that, because that is, that's an example of like, who is nice and who is mean. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a famous quote that says, uh, the abuse of power comes as no surprise. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, when you are in, in the, let's say upper part of the hierarchy, uh, you have to be very careful and see, look at your own behavior and see what it brings out from you. And so, so for me, it was also something that I wanted to look at because I, parts of the film were written during the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very interesting to give Carl, the male model, the currency of beauty and sexuality when he is on this island and there is a powerful woman on top. Will he use his beauty and his sexuality as a currency in order to get a little bit more food? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. and I was also interested in Will Abigail, uh, then, that is twice as old as, as the Carl's character. Mm -hmm, the toilet cleaner. Yeah. Will she invite him? Will she take the chance? Will she, will she maybe start to think that, well, so much responsibility I have on this island, I'm fishing and cooking for everybody. Shouldn't that give me some kind of advantage? Right. You know, so, so trying to step away from a little bit of the explanation that has to do with a uh, man, woman, uh, skin color, and so on, and look at our behavior is changing because of which position we have in a financial and a social structure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It sometimes felt a little bit less to me about wealth and more about advantage, as you say, sort of like how we play each other in order to get the most. You know, actually, sometimes it's interesting to talk about this because I think that... Um, how we are using our power position and how we are, I would say, manipulating in order to get what we want. It's so subtle most uh -huh. of the 99% of the time. And of course, uh, with using an island, using a luxury yacht, using the fashion world, that is, uh, at least the fashion world and the, and the yacht, is, there's so strong hierarchies in these mm -hmm. worlds. And then I wanted to take away these hierarchies and then look on, okay, what happens if we flip the pyramid over? And like big picture, what is the moral question you're trying to answer? 
I don't know if I, I have any more questions that I'm trying to answer, but you know what? I have always been interested in sociology. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what I think is so beautiful with sociology is that it doesn't point the fingers on the individual and put shame and blame on the individual. It's actually showing with this context, our behavior, uh, I can identify with failing as a human being. Mm. Uh, With this context, with this setup, uh, I can understand that we humans maybe don't act how we have been learned how to act when it comes to ethic and morale. So I always uh, have been interested in trying to create setups that is very hard to handle uh, for the characters. Mm-hmm. And very often they are inspired of, of things that I've exper- experienced myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so not put the blame on the individual, that, uh, but, but show the context and, and try to explain something about our behavior through a context. Mm-hmm. Ruben, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we will have novelist Gabrielle Zevin on, who wrote Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And we'll also have the story of the sketchy Rolex gray market. Again, we would love if you could fill out our survey to make this show even better for you. The link is at ft.com slash weekend survey, which is in the show notes alongside everything mentioned today. Please also say hi in other ways anytime. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I am mostly chatting with listeners on Instagram, so come say hi there. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is everyone who worked on these segments. Katya Kamkova, our senior producer, Lulu Smith, our producer, and Molly Nugent and Zoe Sullivan as contributing producers. Our sound engineers, Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, and our executive producer, Topher Forges. Original music is by Metaphor Music, and special thanks goes, as always, to Cheryl Brumley. Take care, have a lovely weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. <laughs>